everyone had a good night's rest. It's certainly a blessing to be with the Lord's people on his day and to worship him and remember his death on the cross. And uh, so thankful that uh, we can all be together this morning. So we've, we've mostly been looking at broad, general topics pertaining to the church in the, in the series so far. I want to narrow into a very specific issue, uh, but I think you understand the reason why um, I want to I want to focus on this issue uh, so closely, and that is because it is such a controversial issue, um, and this isn't something that's coming. You know, a lot of time we we, we anticipate and forecast what is going to be the next big thing that will will divide the church or uh, cause cause problems. This is, this is already here. This is something that uh, we're seeing all over the country, uh, churches making compromises over, and, and it's something that uh, we just have to keep coming back and, and reviewing what the scriptures have to say. And um, anyway, this is, this is uh, a topic that in Jesus' day, when Jesus was teaching and preaching and, and uh, presenting his view of women, it was just as controversial as it is today, only in a very different way. Jesus' attitude and his, uh, the way he used women and taught women, I don't think any of us could possibly understand how different Jesus was than everyone else during his time. I want to show you some quotes, uh, just giving us a sense of what the view of women was in the first century. Um, Aristotle, who predates Jesus by a few hundred years, uh, said, woman may be said to be inferior to man. Uh, William Barclay, in one commentary, said in his morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was a prayer. And then he said further, in Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely her husband's possession to do with as he willed. She was property. Property. And that wasn't just among a few. That was the general idea among many Jews and Gentiles at this time. Uh, another commentator said, women received no education, not even teaching, and their religious writings, the Torah. One rabbi who lived at that time said, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her lasciviousness. Can you imagine that? And this is among a people that, you know, grew up hearing the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. And, and what are you to do with that law? You're to have it in your heart and teach it to your children, boys and girls. And yet there was this idea that had sprung up among the Jews. And this is no doubt. The, the result of the popular culture around them, the Greeks and the Romans, that it had come to the point where you were not allowed to teach 
your daughters the law. Um, and that was just the common view. So think about how that contrasted with Jesus. I want you to notice. I'm just going to throw all this up on the screen and talk about it. So think about the fact that among Jesus' closest followers, they were women. They were there. They were the last ones there at the cross. All the men are gone. In fact, if you read Mark chapter 15, uh, the, only, the only ones that you read about surrounding Jesus are obscure <laughs> characters like Simon of Cyrene who uh, carried Jesus' cross and then the centurion who makes the confession. You don't hear from Peter. You don't hear from Andrew, James, John, any of the men who were his closest followers. It was the women who were there at the cross. And they were the first ones to the grave. And of course, they were coming to the grave because they were there at the grave when he was being buried. And they wanted to finish what they had not been able to finish because the next day was the Sabbath. And they were hurrying to get him into the grave. Uh, and of course, because they were the first to the grave, they were also the first to see that the, the tomb was empty. And who did Jesus appear to first? Of course, Peter and John ran to the, to the tomb when they heard that it was empty. But Jesus didn't appear to Peter. He didn't appear to John. The first person that he appeared to was Mary Magdalene, a woman. Um, Luke chapter 8, we're given a list of, of women who were financial supporters of Jesus. Mary Magdalene being one of those, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Uh, in John chapter 4, the woman of the well. Of course, this scene is breaking all kinds of conventions. First of all, that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritan. In fact, that's, that's, that was her first response when he asked her uh, for water to drink. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. And yet, when the disciples came back, Jesus had sent them into town to buy food. When the disciples came back, it says that they marveled not because he was speaking with a Samaritan. They marveled because he was speaking to a woman. Remember, you were not to teach a woman in, according to, to the, the customs of the day. And, and that scene, and that helps us understand the scene there in Luke chapter 10, the end of Luke 10, where Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha. Of course, Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet. Martha is busy serving. And Martha comes into Jesus' and you know, interrupts his lesson and says, tell my sister to get in here and help me. And, you know, there's different ways that you can read and interpret that whole scene. You know, one way is to say, well, you know, Martha's just upset with her sister because she's not working or, you know, maybe she's, you know, there's something going on between these two sisters that we don't know about. But one theory, and I think this is right, is that the reason why Martha was upset is because Mary was doing something that was improper. For a woman to be sitting at the feet of a Jewish rabbi at this time was just not done. In fact, it was scandalous to some people. And so she's like, tell my sister to get back here in the kitchen where she belongs. She doesn't need to be sitting at your feet. And Jesus, of course, responds, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And she has chosen the good portion. And portion is something that you would use in talking about portions of food. What food was more important in this context? The food that was being served by Martha or 
are the food that Jesus was giving. They are teaching him being the bread of life. And so we see from all of these examples, and we could give more, that Jesus was not concerned about social convention. He wasn't concerned about just conforming to whatever the, the customs of the day were. He was revolutionary in the way that he interacted with and treated and spoke about women. Uh, we, we could just multiply these, these examples. And yet, what do we see? There were no women chosen to be among the twelve. I mean, if Jesus wanted to make a statement for us to understand that all the rules are changing and women are to have the same role as men in the church, that would have been the opportunity to name even one to be one of the twelve apostles. And yet he didn't do that. No woman was sent to teach, to preach, or to heal. Uh, the Great Commission, of course, has broad application, including women, of course. And yet it was given to men, uh, the context there in Matthew 28. And there was no promise of future leadership given. And so while Jesus did break many of the rules regarding women, we see that there was uh, clearly in Jesus decisions that he made regarding preaching and teaching and leading the church, uh, a clear reference that, that men are to be the, the, the spiritual leaders in the church. Of course, most of the controversy about women and the New Testament is not about Jesus. Jesus is not normally brought up. It's normally Paul. What was Paul's view of women? And let me just offer three different uh, views of Paul. One view of Paul is that he was a Pharisee, and he was simply following the patriarchal pattern of ancient Jewish law. Uh, in other words, all those statements that we read about of the view of, of women in the first century, that Paul was still influenced by that when he wrote what he did about the role of women. And so we should not see Paul as the disciple of Jesus. We should see Paul as the Pharisee who is still very much controlled by the customs of his day. Another quite opposite view of Paul is that he was an egalitarian, which is a fancy word just to say that he saw no distinction between men and women in ministry. Actually, I should have told you to turn to Galatians uh, chapter uh, 3. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. And I want to read the passage that would be used uh, to suggest that Paul was an egalitarian. Uh, verse 23, beginning, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so this is the 
text that was used to defend the idea that Paul was an egalitarian. No distinction between men and women in ministry. And then the third view, and this is the view that I have, and I believe you have as well, is that Paul was a complementarian, which is a very fancy word to say that Paul felt that men and women were equal but had distinct complementary roles. That the role that women play in Paul's mind was a complement to the role of men. And so we're going to look at some passages here, and let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. Here are the... Oh, before we look at Ephesians 5, let me suggest to you that Paul had a very high view of women, the same high view of women that Jesus had. Just look at Romans 16. Here is the names of the known women in this list. Uh, you understand that just like in today's day and age, you can hear a person's name and it could be female, it could be male. The same thing was true in the first century as well. So we're not sure about all of the names in Romans 16. But these are the names that are, are most likely the, the names of females. And listen to what Jesus, or what, I'm sorry, what Paul says about them. He talks about Phoebe, who was a servant of the church. That's one of the reasons why the, the letter was written. She was traveling to Rome. She had business there. And he commends her as being a patron of himself and others, of supporting him in the gospel. And he asked the church to support her in whatever work she has there in Rome, commending her to the church, speaking very highly of her. He talks about Prisca, which is shorthand for or a shortened form of Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila and all the good that they did, how they risked their necks for his sake. I wish I knew the backstory, what exactly they did risking their life. And yet he speaks so highly of her. Mary, who worked hard in the Lord. Junia, well known among the apostles. They were in the Lord before him. It's probably suggesting that they were from Jerusalem. Uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, who were praised as being workers in the Lord. Persis, the beloved, worked hard in the Lord. Rufus's mother, whom he says is like a mother to me as well. And I've got mothers all over the place who have taken care of me in the work that I do. And then he mentions Julia and Nerys' sister. And he's noting all of these women, commending all of these women in a way that would have made many audiences uncomfortable talking about all those women. Again, I, I believe that Paul, just like Jesus, was not concerned about social convention and what was proper or right at the time. He broke a lot of the rules when it comes to his treatment and his attitude toward women. But I do want to look at these uh, four key passages, and let's start over here in Ephesians chapter 5. We read this, I think, last night, talking about um, the roles of husbands and wives. And I just want to ask the question of you, as we read this, is this Paul, uh, the Pharisee, who's just showing his prejudices and his uh, biases against women, influenced by the culture? Is this Paul the egalitarian, seeing no distinction in roles between men and women? Or is it Paul the complementarian? Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. <coughs> However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, if you just read verses 22 through 24, you could easily make a case that this is just Paul the Pharisee. He's just reflecting the, the biases and the culture of his day. But who does he have more to say to? The husbands or the wives? It's the husbands. He has much more to say to the husbands, to the wives. In fact, twice as much. It's just looking, you know, eyeballing it in my Bible. He, what he says to the husbands it's something you would not have heard in the first century. I'm sure in the first century there were, would have been uh, some Jewish rabbis who says, yeah, you need to love your wife. But to this extent, in the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that you were to love your wife as your own body, to treat her as a, as a precious uh I mean, in the first century, they were treating their wives as mere property. You wouldn't speak of property in this way. This was something that was unique. This was something that was new, something revolutionary. This whole idea of the way husbands should love their wives. And they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. No, what we see here in this text is, is Paul presenting husbands and wives having distinct roles but each one of them, in their own unique ways, reflecting this intimate relationship we talked about the other night between Christ and his church. It just so happens that in this text, he's talking more to the husbands than the wives. You look at 1 Peter chapter 3, where he speaks to husbands and wives. He's got one verse on the husbands, six verses on the wives. And why is that? Because in the context there, the emphasis in 1 Peter 2 and 3 is on submission. In the same way that husbands are to reflect the love that Christ has for the church, in that passage, he's saying the wives are to reflect the submission of Christ. You read the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, and then what does he say in chapter 3 and verse 1? Likewise, wives. In other words, in the same way that Christ was submissive in the midst of suffering, wives, even if you're married to an unbeliever, it may be very difficult being in that situation. But in both situations, both in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Peter chapter 3, husbands and wives are called upon to imitate and reflect the gospel, either in terms of loving leadership for husbands or sacrificial leadership in, in, indeed, or in loving, humble submission. But in both cases, they have a very high, exalted role because each in their own way is reflecting something different about the character of Christ. It's just beautiful the way Paul and Peter present 
uh, this in these texts on marriage. Let's go on to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll start reading in verse 8. I know it says verse 11 in your outline, but verse 8 he speaks to the men before he speaks to the women. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, again, which one of these views of Paul does this passage align with? Is this Paul... Uh, the egalitarian? No, not at all. Clearly, he sees that there are different roles in the church. Men in the church are lifting holy hands in prayer to God. They are leading. The woman, though, is in a position of submission. She is to learn with quietness. She is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And he said, well, that's just reflecting the pharisaical attitudes of his day. He's just He's just a product of his culture. Is this culture? Or is Paul not pointing back to something that extends well beyond the first century culture of Jew Jewish and Greek and Roman life? He goes all the way back to the beginning. Why is a woman not to teach or to exercise authority? Verse 13 says, for Adam was formed first. He goes all the way back to creation itself. This is a creation principle in Paul's mind. This is not just, well, we don't want to rock the boat in society. We don't want to seem too uh, scandalous. We want to blend in with everybody else. That's not the case at all. What he is telling them, what he is commanding here, what he is pro prohibiting, I should say, here, is rooted in the creation itself. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 now. And we made reference to this, I think, in the very first lesson, talking about authority. The, the view that Paul had of his own words as he gave commandments to the churches. Uh, I'm going to begin in, in the, the middle of verse 33 in the ESV. The sentence begins, As in all the churches, the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or... Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, the emphasis here, I mean, he does bring up the law, rooting what he is prohibiting here in the assemblies to what the law also says. But really, the emphasis here is not, well, this just aligns with the law and what we've always heard and what we've always... The 
emphasis here is that the things he is telling them are a commandment of the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, this is not just my preference. This is not just what I think is the best thing, given your circumstances there in Corinth, and given what the culture is there. He's saying, this is not something that is negotiable. This is not something that is debatable. This is something that is commanded from the Lord. And so this is from Jesus. Whatever you say about this text. Now, if you believe that Paul is not inspired and he's just saying, well, we've got different problems there. But if you believe that Paul is inspired of God and he's speaking the words of Christ, what he's affirming here is that whatever you think my opinion is, it's not my opinion. This is what the Lord is commanding. This is about Jesus and not me. And then one last passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's regrettable that because of the differences that we have over the head covering, this is oftentimes a passage that we not necessarily avoid, but it becomes a, a contentious thing sometimes, not as much as it used to be. Uh, and, and sometimes it's, it's just a passage that we focus on the application and not the principles behind or under, that undergird the application. This is one of, in my opinion, this is perhaps the most important text in talking about the roles of men and women. Uh, because he does such a good job of explaining his reasoning behind what he writes here. And so, yes, there are some specific applications here that we need to talk about. And I've been a part of discussions on the covering, and that's all well and good. But let's not forget, and let's certainly not ignore, especially when we're discussing the covering, the principles behind what he says, because it's so important. So let's focus on that as we read verses 2 uh, through 16. He says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But if it is a disgrace, if, but, but, it, but it, since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor to the churches of God. Now, my point in this lesson is not to talk about the covering, as I've, as I've said, and I'm happy to talk with you after if you want to about this subject. My point here is to emphasize what Paul begins with here in verse 3. Let me read it again. The head of every man 
is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see that? God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. And he works really hard in this text to say, look, this is the reason why we have this practice, this specific practice of the covering. But understand that what we're doing is we're going back to creation itself. The woman, as he, as he said in 1 Timothy 2, man was not made for woman, but woman for man. But then he turns around and what does he say? Every man, every single man in this audience, every man is from woman. Do you notice how he's pointing out this equality? He says man is not independent of woman, nor woman of man in the Lord. And so physically this is true. Yes, man was the first to cre be created, but every man since then has come from a woman. But spiritually this is true. In the Lord we are all the same. There is no male or female, just like there's no slave or free. There's no master and slave. We're all looking each other in the eye when we're in the Lord. It's We're all one in Christ. And yet, that does not take away the fact that there are different roles that have been assigned. Going all the way back to creation. That's the reason why God created man first. Is that he might be the leader. He was chosen for this role. And so let's, let's synthesize what we've learned here. Take all these things and, and let me... Let me make some, some quick points. Do it one at a time. The first principle we see in all of these passages is that uh, headship is universal. It's a part of the world. It doesn't matter what kind of organization what you're talking about, whether you're talking about a family, whether you're talking about a church, whether you're talking about a business, whether you're talking about a sports team, you've got to have a head. There's got to be leadership somewhere. Otherwise, the organization is not going to work. There's no, there's no true, absolute democracy. I mean, I understand that we are a part of a sort of democracy, but this isn't a true democracy. I don't want to go too deep into politics, but there are leaders and there are followers in any form of organization or government. That's just the way it is. You can't have a situation where every single voice is the same. Someone has to take the lead. Headship is universal. And headship and submission are necessary whenever there's a plurality in order to have unity. What happens when you've got different heads who are all saying different things? You're going to have division. You're going to have people going in different directions. If the head coach or the offensive coordinator or defensive co coordinator calls a play and sends it in, and the quarterback's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm going to do my own thing. And then the wide receiver's like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And then the offensive linemen decide they're going to do their own thing. And they're running. I mean, it's chaos. You know, that, it doesn't matter how talented you are. Somebody's got to lead. Someone's got to be in charge. Someone has to submit in that Situation. Now, that's not to say that the quarterback is more important than the offensive lineman, and a smart quarterback will say that in <laughs> post-game, right? If it weren't for my offensive line blocking, we wouldn't have won this game. But there is headship. There is leadership. There has to be for there to be unity, for us to work together as a unit, whether in the family or in the church. 
And headship is not a sign on the basis of work. That's what I was saying about the offensive lineman and the quarterback. It's not that one position is more important than the other. It's just one position has to lead if there's going to be. Th think about this. In that list in 1 Corinthians 11, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Does that mean that man is more important than woman? Who is the head of Christ? God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Everything you say about the deity of the Father, you can say is true about the Son himself. He is of the same nature. He is not a lesser God. He is not, uh, it's not that God has this much power and Christ has this much power. Or God has this much wisdom and Christ has this much wisdom. No, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. Colossians chapter 3. I mean, uh, or Colossians chapter 2. There is, there is no point in which Jesus as the Son is inferior to the Father. But in every point, the Son is submissive to his Father. And that submission does not in any way take away from his worth or his intrinsic value. And the same thing is true of the man and the woman. Headship is not a sign on the basis of worth. It's not that God looked down at Adam and Eve and said, I just think Adam is a whole lot smarter than Eve. Or I think Adam is, is a whole lot more worthy than Eve. That's not it at all. Uh, it, was, it was simply someone had to lead. And he gave man that responsibility. And headship in the church is simply a reflection of headship in heaven. And that's what I was saying about 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 says that Christ is the head of the church and husband is the head of the wife. And the submission of the woman and the love of the husband is simply a reflection of what we see in heaven between God and Christ and between Christ and the church. The submission of the woman in 1 Peter 3 is a reflection of the gospel itself. That in the same way that Jesus gave his life and submitted himself to the Father's will, into your hands I commit my spirit entrusting his soul as to a faithful creator. In the same way, wives are called upon to submit lovingly, freely to their husbands. This is all a reflection, and, and it's not a demeaning thing at all. At all. Uh, and one more point. Glory is found in submission, not self-exaltation. Let me, to, to bear down on this point, look over at Philippians chapter 2. I'll tell you the problem we have in society today is not just that we have a, a problem seeing the differences between men and women. That's not the problem. The problem in society and in some churches today is not that we're just confused about men and women and the differences and the roles. That, that is a problem. I'm not saying that's not a problem, but that's not the core problem. The core problem in society today is we don't understand the gospel. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, literally translated, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we don't understand that. And because we don't understand that, we have these problems understanding the exalted role that God has given to women. It's not demeaning at all in any way that what God has called women to do is what he's called all of us to do. He said to, to, to James and John and to the rest of the disciples after they were coming seeking a position on his left hand and on his right, seeking glory in the kingdom. You don't understand my kingdom. You're thinking the way the Gentiles think. The Gentiles think that they're great by the position that they have, by the people they're able to command. That's not greatness. Jesus said you go up by going down. You become first by making yourself last. You, 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 you find greatness in the kingdom by making yourself last of all and servant of all as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What God has done is he's shown us the pathway to true greatness. God exalted his son after he humbled himself and became as a slave, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And until and unless we understand the gospel, we'll never understand the exalted view that God has of the roles of both men and women. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We're all one. We're all the same. But we do have different roles. And so let's talk about God's exalted role uh, for women. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, in the beginning, what was, what was God's vision? What was God's plan for the man and the woman? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, plural, man and woman, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. God's plan for the woman was for her to be a co-regent with the man, ruling over the creation. That was God's plan from the beginning. Genesis 2 and verse 18, he goes back and tells the creation story again. And the Lord God said, after he made the man, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we don't like the word helper. Daddy's a little helper, mama's a little helper, hamburger helper. I mean, it just doesn't sound all that important, does it? Did you know that this word, help, helper, is more often used of God than anyone else? We've been reading through the Psalms, and so many times in the Psalms, the Psalms elevate and praise and extol God for being our help. And it's the same exact word that's used to the woman. Do you think that's a demeaning role? To be called man's help? Man's helper? What is he saying? The man is so great? Or that the woman who he made to compliment and to help the man 
is great. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, verse 24, and hold fast to his wife, and what, the, what shall they become? A man ruling over his castle. A woman running around as his slave. No, they should become one flesh. One flesh. That was the original intent of God for the family, for the husband and wife relationship to be one of such intimacy and such closeness. A man and a woman, heirs together, Peter says, of the grace of life, looking each other in the eyes. They are equals in this relationship. They are one flesh. Yes, there is a head, and yes, there is one who submits, but they are one flesh. God has made them one flesh to have dominion over his creation as co-regents in this world that he made for them. And so what does this look like in the church? Therefore, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. And I talked about this yesterday. I believe that this is, of course, saying that a man is to be a one-woman man, not to be guilty of divorce and remarriage or, some, or having two wives, that, that would be sinful. This is speaking to his reputation. But it's more than that. Why, why can't a single man, you know, who is of good reputation and never been divorced, why can he not serve as a shepherd? It's because God knows the man needs this. If he's going to rule well, if he's going to be able to show hospitality, if he's going to be able to uh, manage situations that are very sensitive, dealing with interpersonal relationships, he is going to lean on his wife and depend on her for emotional support, for physical support, for intellectual support, spiritual guidance. This team will work together well because he is going to be equipped having that helper to complement. As you, as you know, men and women are different. We don't think the same way. We don't see the same way. And God has made us that we might work together, complementing each other, working together as heirs together. This is what God had in mind for elders and shepherds, that they have that wife to complement them, especially in their weaknesses. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 14. So I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household. Give the adversary no occasion for slander. One more verse on this idea of managing the household. Titus 2 and verse 4. So train the young women to love the older women or train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, managers at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. I learned a long time ago to let Adrian do the job that God had for her to do. That when I had started getting in, getting into her domain and her sphere where God has placed her as a manager. And that is the, the, the term that, that is used in those places has the idea of authority. She has authority over this realm. And the, the beautiful picture we have of the virtuous wife in Proverbs 31, it begins, you know, after saying a virtuous wife who can find her worth is more than rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her so that he will have no lack of gain. What that indicates is that he so trusts her to manage the house that he's not looking over her shoulder, micromanaging every decision that she makes. She, she sees a field and she buys it. And, and she sells things to the merchants. And she's busy working with her hands. She is overseeing the, the ways of her household. She is 
uh, she has servants who are maid servants who are coming and receiving orders and instructions from her. And this whole machine, this whole organization works because this beautiful woman who has such wisdom and has such insight and such leadership skills manages her and, and her husband is known to the gates. Her husband is doing the job that he has, not having to worry about all the decisions that she's making day to day, not having to keep her under his thumb. And he doesn't want to keep her under his thumb because he would just mess it up. That's the view of women presented in the scriptures is that God has assigned to her this role and told the man, let her do that. Ultimately, she is in submission to her husband, but her husband so trusts her that he gives her the latitude to run the household as she sees fit. The widows in Acts 9 and verse 39. And I'll tell you, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've been to a lot of funerals that had a lot of people, but there was one funeral I remember as a child. There were more people at that funeral than any I can remember, and it was a woman. A woman like Dorcas. The widows stood beside him weeping and showing the tunics and the other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with him. Dorcas would not grab the headlines. She was not up front. She was not leading in, in that kind of sense, but she was a servant leader. She was the kind of leader that Jesus was speaking about when he rebuked James and John and the disciples in their ambition, thinking about greatness in the kingdom. This is greatness in the kingdom, what Dorcas demonstrated in her life. And then I entreat Euodia, Philippians 4, verse 2, I entreated Euodians, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Did Paul view their work as important? Absolutely. They were co-laborers with them. Everything they did was valuable and infinitely important to Paul. So, a couple of exhortations as I bring the lesson to a close. First of all, to the married, I encourage you to compliment your husband's role in the church. Hold up his hands. Encourage him and help him in any, any spiritual work that he does. He may not be all the things that he ought to be as a man. Who among us are? We are all works in progress. Are we not as disciples of Jesus Christ? We all have a long way to go. So there may be a, many things that your husband needs to improve upon. Don't nag him. Don't constantly bring up all the faults that he has. Support him in the good that he is doing. Encourage him in every way. Be his biggest fan, his biggest cheerleader, and compliment your husband's role in the church. And to the singles, I would encourage you to serve and influence in a position of submission. And I always bring up my sister. She's uh, 53 years old, or about to turn 53 uh, in December. And uh, she's never been married, doesn't have kids. And yet she has been such a profound influence there at the church in Birmingham where she attends and in the community and does so much good for the family. And I, I just think of so many single women who in their own unique way are serving in the kingdom and doing things that I, I know the Lord is pleased with and ultimately will reward uh, for good that they do. And so will you pray with me as we bring the lesson to the folks. Father, I thank you so much for this time that we've had to think about these scriptures and what they present to us, the pattern that you've given us for the home and the church, 
the roles that you have given us as husbands and wives, as uh, elders and elders' wives, and women working in the, in the Lord's work in whatever way they can and, and should. Lord, help us to encourage and to exhort our young ladies, especially as they grow up wanting to be young mothers and wives and servants in whatever way they can in their life and help that us to contradict and to show a better way than what the culture has shown and uh, the, stri the striving in this culture that does not know you that does not know the gospel uh, help us to give them a better more biblical view of themselves and their identity in the world and to, and to find their greatness in serving you and that's true for all of us both men and women so thank you, Father, for giving us this, and pray that we can adequately teach this to our young men and women. We pray all this in Jesus' name.